and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Christopher Odenay, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Oklahoma College of Law. We will discuss his new book, Foreclosed, Mortgage, Servi- Ser- uh, Mar- Mortgage Servicing and the Hidden Architecture of Homeownership in America, which is published by Cambridge University Press. So welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you for having me, Brian. Yeah, the pleasure's all mine, and congratulations on the book. I thought it was fantastic and really timely. Um, so I was hoping we could start for listeners who may not know a whole lot about how the um, mortgage and mortgage, mortgage servicing industry works um, by kind of taking a kind of a trip back in time to the beginning of the housing crisis. And maybe you could explain to listeners what the mortgage industry looked like at that point in time. In other words, how were mortgages sold? Um, what did they contain? And you know what happened to them after people took out a mortgage? Sure. Happy to talk about that. Um, so the mortgage industry has, the mortgage uh, finance industry, residential, has really gone through quite a transformation in the past you know, several decades. Um, the sort of traditional way in which someone received a loan to purchase a home was by going to a local lending institution, it was usually going to be a bank, you know, a place where people put their deposits uh, or a credit union or a federal savings association or a state savings association, sort of your typical financial institution where you keep your checking account, et cetera. Um, sometimes you would go through a broker who would help sort of facilitate getting that loan from a financial institution, but that was basically how it worked. Um, you would go, you would get the loan, you would use the loan money to purchase a home, uh, you would give that lender a mortgage to secure your obligation to repay that loan, and you would repay that loan over its lifetime back to that original lender. So essentially, the person who made the loan to you is the person who would keep the loan and that you would be paying uh, until you had paid off the loan completely. And that's what we usually call portfolio lending. So over time, there was a really big shift, uh, and that shift created a couple of really significant changes in the market. Of course, if you're going to make a loan and you're going to keep that loan on your own books, there's a really strong incentive for you to make sure that the person that you're lending the money to has the ability or at least the probable ability to pay it back. Over time, uh, we began to see a change in the dynamics of mortgage lending to what's called originate to distribute. It's often sort of the term that's used. And that's after the loan is made, the loan is then sold. Initially, loans were sold to Fannie Mae uh, and then Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac sort of around the 1970s to help facilitate the spread of liquidity across the United States. Obviously, people who lived in rural areas where there were banks that didn't have a ton of deposits means that those banks were not able to make a lot of new mortgage loans. But if they could sell the loans that they did have and get cash for them, then they could make new loans. And that was sort of the idea. Uh, Eventually, Moving closer into sort of the 80s and 90s, uh, it wasn't just Fannie and Freddie that wanted to get into buying mortgage loans. Fannie and Freddie were limited in the kinds of loans that they could buy. Generally, they could only buy loans that were made to pretty you know, middle income, but solidly financially healthy borrowers, and the loans had to be on pretty you know, even-handed terms. But sort of what we might call sort of big financial giants, Wall Street financial firms decided that they wanted to get into the business of buying mortgage loans. Uh, And so they began buying them too, but they didn't have the same sort of restrictions on what they could buy. 
they began buying loans that were made to often people who didn't really understand the terms of the loans that they were taking out and loans that were being made with terms that were in some cases designed to default. Um, this is the beginning of what's commonly known as subprime lending to subprime borrowers. This book is really about mortgage servicers. And a lot of people understand or at least have some familiarity with subprime mortgage lending. I mean, the big short certainly popularized some of the dynamics of what was going on behind the scenes there. But my book really wanted to pull the curtain back on what I think are very important, but very little understood, and, and perhaps one might even say very little even known about entities in the housing finance space. And these are the mortgage middlemen, or what they're more formally known as mortgage servicers. And they stand between the homeowner and the person that ultimately owns the loan. So I told you that the loans were initially sold to Fannie and Freddie. So it wasn't the person who owns the loan is not going to be the one that initially made the loan. And then eventually to Wall Street firms took over or sort of got in aggressively involved in this space. All those loans would then be taken, whether Fannie or Freddie bought them or some Wall Street firm bought them and pooled together in a trust, a trust entity. And that trust entity would issue pieces of paper, bonds, securities that would be sold to anyone with cash. Usually it was insurance companies and pension funds, retirement accounts. And when a homeowner makes a payment, that homeowner makes a payment to a mortgage servicer. And that servicer takes a little cut of the payment themselves and then passes the rest on to the trust that distributes it to all those people who bought those pieces of paper, those holders of mortgage-backed securities. The servicer is essentially the somewhat of an agent of the trust, uh, something of an intermediary. But what the book tries to explain is that they really are so much more than that. They not only just collect your payments every month and make sure your property insurance and your homeowners, uh, I mean, your property insurance and your property taxes get paid at the end of the year. In downturns, when there are defaults, the servicer is the one who gets to decide largely on their own, whether or not the homeowner is going to get like a loan modification and get to stay in their home and keep it, or whether or not they're going to get kicked out with a foreclosure. And sort of surprisingly, <laughs> before financial reform that followed the 2008 crisis, these firms were not well regulated, and they had really too much discretion with very little industry or government guidance and how they were supposed to deal with like the waves of loan defaults and massive foreclosures that came right after the crash. And even though financial reform in 2010, the Dodd-Frank Act brought a slew of new consumer-facing rules to bear on servicers, nothing was really done to ensure their financial health. And I, and I try and point out in the book that this sort of omission is important because today there's a major market shift happening in mortgage servicing. And it's a shift away from these loans being serviced by big, highly regulated traditional banks to the so-called shadow bank industry, the shadow bank sector of the financial economy, which largely exists outside the typical regulatory environment. One of the things I thought was really interesting in your book was the way you talked about this kind of sh that you just mentioned this shift in how mortgages were owned and serviced in other words initially it was the bank that owned the mortgage and also was essentially providing the service or was tied to the to the service provider and eventually we saw this kind of bifurcation of ownership in 
and servicing with ownership of the loans going into these trusts that you mentioned. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how those trusts were were structured, especially in relation to kind of other kinds of financial uh, forms that you suggest really contributed to uh, some of the problems that cropped up in the housing crisis. Sure. So um, essentially, after loans were made and when they were subprime, which is really the place where the financial crisis found its origination, when the loans were made, and these loans were essentially designed to default, they included, for instance, probably the, the most common critical form uh, is the adjustable rate mortgage, where a borrower would take out a loan, there would be a very short-term low interest rate, usually for like two to three years, sometimes less. And after that period was over, the interest rate would spike, and it could get as high as like 13 or 14%, which of course would significantly change the monthly amount that the homeowner needed to pay. Now, the way that was sort of gotten around uh, is that when the homeowner's loan got really close to that to the end of what was called the teaser rate period, the homeowner could just go back to that same mortgage lender and say, hey, I want to take out a new loan, pay off my old loan, and then enjoy another two or three years of the teaser rate. And that was refinancing the loan. And the homeowner would just do that over and over and over, usually with the the lender's uh, encouragement. Uh, And that was fine. As long as housing prices continued to increase, which they did before 2008, before they eventually crashed and the housing bubble crashed. So all of these loans were incredibly weak in their actual economic substance. But as long as these very artificial economic winds continued to blow, then the system could continue to be propped up. So all of these subprime loans are put into this trust. They are made and they're transferred, but usually transferred about two to three, three to four times through various entities, um, all sort of under the supervision of a sponsor. And usually that's going to be like a big Wall Street firm, a Goldman Sachs, who's going to put the securitization together. It's a lot of legal maneuvering of these pieces of paper from one place to another until they finally get put in a trust. And the purpose of putting them in a trust is to make them uh, essentially not susceptible to the creditors of whoever put the securitization together. They become bankruptcy remote. So all of these instruments, these essentially promissory notes, these home loans attached to mortgages are put into the trust, and then the securities are sold. Now, of course, there's hundreds and hundreds of loans in a single trust, and their interests are fractionalized into these various different securities. So it's very hard for an investor to really know anything about the loans the fractionalized loans that underpin the security that they're about to buy. So because there's such incredible transaction costs to really doing the due diligence that you would need to, to understand what kind of loans are behind these securities, investors would rely upon the ratings that ratings agencies would give to these securities. And as the book details, there was an incredible amount of fraud and maneuvering and dancing about to disguise the true weakness of these loans and done in such a way as to give them an artificially favorable rating. 
So that's, and then these securities, which were actually you know, quite dangerous, quite toxic, proliferated the entire economy. They got into people's retirement accounts and 401ks and new insurance companies, and even banks, you know, regular banks that we hold our deposits, the Chases, JP Morgan Chases of the world, they bought these securities too, just as investments. And so when the housing bubble crashed, and then people couldn't refinance these loans, their interest rate low period spiked, they began to default, and then all of these payments stopped being made. Servicers couldn't collect these payments anymore. So servicers moved to either do workouts, which means to give a loan modification. Let's see if we can't figure out a payment scheme that the homeowner can continue so that they could stay in the home or a foreclosure. And more often than not, it was the foreclosure um, and really the haphazard, incredibly weak, incredibly ill-trained, and frankly, sort of fraudulent practices of mortgage servicers really came to the fore, which I discuss in part two of the book. One of the things I found really interesting about the fractionalization that you just mentioned was how it seems to have set different investors against each other in terms of the incentive structure and actually made it even harder for the um, – for the the mortgage servicers to uh, to fix the the default problems, is could, could you talk a little bit about how that worked and why that was a problem? Sure, absolutely. Although I'll start off by saying I'm not so, and I sort of say this tongue in cheek in the book, I'm not so necessarily sure that it really was as much of a problem as they said it was. Mm -hmm. So the deal was this. I told you that initially the loans that were made by a bank would then be sold to Fannie and Freddie. Those loans would be securitized in a pretty vanilla way. But the loans that were sold to those big Wall Street firms, what we call the private label market, they were securitized in a different way. Instead of everyone who bought one of those securities from the trust being treated equally, you could buy a security from the trust that fell into one of generally three categories. The first category was the senior category. And if you were in the senior category, that meant that you were going to be paid first. And in exchange for this relatively secure obligation of this trust to pay you, you would get a lower interest rate, a lower return for the security. Then there was the mezzanine sort of level. And if you bought a security out of that category, you would get paid second. And consequently, you would get a little bit of a higher return for taking on a little bit more risk. The very last category uh, that a trust would, a private label trust would issue in terms of securities, what was called the junior or the equity level. And if you bought a security at that level, you would be paid last, but you would be guaranteed that you would receive the highest return. So what do I mean when I say you were paid first, second, or last? You know, if there's a trust and it's got several hundred loans in it, and all the several hundred borrowers are making their monthly payments, then everybody gets paid. It doesn't matter which type of security in the trust that you own. The problem comes in when not everybody pays. So let's say 10%, 20% of the trust's homeowners don't make their monthly payments. They default. Something happens, they lose their job, medical emergency, et cetera. Well, that means there's 20 to 25% less income coming into the trust. So there's not going to be enough to pay everyone with the security. But that's okay if you have one of the senior securities because you'll be paid first. Then if you're in the mezzanine, you'll be paid second. And if you're in the junior or the equity tranche, then you'll be paid last. So you probably won't get everything. 
The problem that came up after the foreclosure crisis or during the crisis is that there were tons of defaults. I mean, the homeownership default rate was just ballooning, particularly in certain parts of the country, like in the sand states, California, Arizona, also in Florida. So these individual mortgage securitization trusts were not getting as much money in the door. Um, And so that created some incentives uh, or some adverse incentives between various holders of different securities in the trust. So, for instance, the uh, or so mortgage servicers said the senior securities holders said, well, servicer, we want you to foreclose on all these homes because if you foreclose on them, then the proceeds will just come to us and they'll come to us first. And they probably probably won't be enough to pay everybody downstream, but that's OK because we're going to get paid first. The more junior, so the mezzanine maybe, and the junior and the equity tranche holders, so servicers would say, they wanted the servicer, no, 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 don't foreclose on the home, go do a workout. Go do a workout, you know, agree that we'll write down the principal of the loan so that they can pay a little bit less a month, but you'll get them paying again. You can see what the reason for that is. If there was a foreclosure, then just some cash would come in the door. It would probably be absorbed by the senior in the mezzanine tranche, and there really wouldn't be anything left for the junior tranche. But... If you could get someone back paying, then maybe there would be some money left over over time for the junior or the lowest tranche. Uh, The problem for servicers is that by design, by tax design and accounting design, the only real definitive legal obligation, the contours of the obligation that the servicer owes in its contract with the trust and by virtue of being with the trust with the investors of those securities is that the servicer has to, and I quote, act in the best interest of the trust or the best interest of the trust investors. And that's really it. Um, That's the only contract obligation there is. That's mostly because in order for the trust to enjoy the special tax treatment and to enjoy bankruptcy remoteness, it can only play a very passive role in the management of the loans. So that means it can't tell the servicer really what to do with those loans, including when there is a default. So servicers said, well, we didn't really know what to do. And so we were paralyzed by the fear of litigation from these different investors. So we very often didn't do anything which caused us to drag on foreclosures or to drag on loan modifications. That's at least the argument that was made by servicers to Congress and to others. So perhaps that played some role in like what made the crisis such a problem. But you suggest that the or you argue that the services themselves uh, contributed to the problem. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about you know how it was that the mortgage servicers contributed to the problem and what kind of problems they caused. Sure. So the real problem with servicers is that the industry was just not very well understood. It really only was created after the savings and loan crisis in the 80s, the 1980s. Um, Before that, there really wasn't like a robust servicing industry where these like third parties managed loans for other people and particularly in the residential context. So for one, you know, when we when servicing took off, there was very much um, sort of a I don't want to say healthy, but by all outward accounts, there was sort of a very healthy uh, residential mortgage market. There weren't high defaults. Uh, everyone was paying, uh, not like a big economic downturn. So servicing in good times is pretty easy. All the servicer does is take the monthly payment, keep a little bit for themselves, uh, and then pass on at the end of the month or the end of whatever the period is to the trust for the trust 
trustee to distribute the funds. And that can be fairly automatic. Uh, and it doesn't really cost a lot of money and overhead or anything like that. And that's what servicers kind of got used to doing. Well, when the foreclosure crisis happened, all of a sudden, it was not such an easy task. All of a sudden, servicers needed to deal with homeowners who were in severe financial distress, who were facing the loss of their home. And then they're also on the other side dealing with securities investors who were saying, hey, I need to get paid. And part of the problem was the actual economics of servicers. So not only do they not have a lot of well-trained staff, in fact, I chronicle in the book that they would offshore some of their call, uh, some of their staff to call centers overseas. Uh, many servicers, uh, sort of customer service that people you would call would make, you know, just minimum wage or just a little bit above that. And they were not at all prepared for the really high touch frankly, sometimes counseling that's required to deal with a homeowner that's just lost their job, that's facing the loss of their home, all the things that we saw after 2008. So that was one thing. They were not ready. The other problem is, and this has to do with the economics of servicing. So this is going to be a little a little uh, technical, but I think it's important to understand. Just because a homeowner does not make a monthly payment to a servicer does not mean that the servicer does not have to still pass on of that monthly payment to the trust. There's an obligation in the contract between the trust and the servicer, which says, hey, you have to continue to make advances to us. And in the case of basically all trust, uh, all pooling and servicing agreement contracts, the servicer has to continue to make those payments until one of two things happen. There's either a foreclosure or there's some sort of workout. Um, in the case of loans that are uh, backed by Ginny, uh, Ginny uh, May, which is a, a government entity that, secure, that guarantees certain securities, the obligation of a servicer to continue to make payments to a trust of those loans never ends until the loans are completely paid off. So that's a really big deal because that means servicers really start to bleed cash in times of high default rates because they have to continue to make advances to the trust. Now, remember, if when all the defaults occurred, they already didn't have a whole lot of staffing and resources, then now they really don't have the money to staff up. So, for example, one of the big mortgage servicers, and it's become even since the crisis, one of the biggest, Ogwin Financial, it saw a tremendous amount of its cash eaten up during the foreclosure crisis caused by defaults based on its obligation to make advances. So, for instance, as a share of Aquan's like, total assets, the percentage that were consumed to meet these obligations to the trust in 2006 was 45%. By 2011, when defaults were super high, 79% of Ogwin's assets were being eaten up to make these mandatory and required advances to the trust. In fact, the CEO of Ogwin said, if we cannot find additional funds to continue to make these advances or speed up our foreclosures or our loss mitigation or what have you, then we're going to breach all of our servicing agreements and, and you know, would bankruptcy follow? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really seems like from your description, it's like not only was the structure of the mortgage industry, mortgage servicing industry not designed to deal with the crisis, it was actually like, it almost seems like it was weirdly designed to make the crisis worse. 
Yeah, and you know, one thing in that chronicle, I have, I think one thing that if I could, if I could say so, I think one thing that makes the book strong is that there are a lot of stories of what homeowners dealt with. One of the things, to your point, when servicers were bleeding cash and they're trying to deal with homeowners, the only way that they can stop, well, I should say a third way that they can stop making these mandatory advances to the trust is if the trust hires a new servicer. So servicers would transfer the rights to service loans in a trust to a new servicer. In fact, often today you'll hear people say, sort of lay, lay people say, oh, my loan got sold. Uh, my Someone else owns my loan now. That's not really true. Your loan is always owned by that trust. Right in the beginning, after your loan is made, there's like a series of, as I said, about two to three, three to four transfers in rapid succession to get the loan into the trust. And then from there, any transfers of ownership of your loan, that's really just the servicing rights to your loan being transferred. So you probably read in the book that homeowners who were in default would be talking to their servicer, trying to fill out a loan modification application, see if maybe they could work something out. And the servicer higher up, servicer management would say, all right, you know what? All these loans in this particular trust, we're going to sell them to another servicer. So then all of a sudden, when a homeowner might think that he or she is getting really close to completing a loss mitigation application, to completing some sort of loan modification, they would get notice, your servicing rights have been sold to a new company. Uh, now you need to start a loan application with their form. And basically, you would just start at square one. And that was an enormous problem. I mean, I can't really understate how often that happened. And you can imagine how incredibly frustrating that is for a homeowner who thinks they're on their way to potentially staying in their home. Yeah. And it, and it seems like that really made it, it like almost discouraged the potential of sort of some sort of compromise on a lot of these mortgages actually not only forced people out of their homes, but actually it seems like it must have hurt the the owners of the mortgage trusts as well. Right. Uh, absolutely. And I think that that was really an interesting uh, and very unfortunate aspect of, of the entire ordeal is that the the architecture of how all this worked, securitization, the servicer in the middle, the homeowner over here, the relationship between the trust, the relationship and the servicer, and the relationship between the trust and the securities investors was incredibly opaque. And it didn't even always make sense that the incentives were aligned in an obvious way, even when you would think, okay, well, this is going to be bad for homeowners, but it'll be good for the investors. That wasn't even always the case. And in some ways, servicer behavior reflected just how incredibly defective and crumbling the entire system was, not necessarily making sense as to the interests of the parties that they were trying to nominally at least, you know, represent and, and sort of do do best for. So how is Congress and the mortgage industry changed since the crisis? I mean, what have we done to try to fix this problem? So by and large, um, 
one th- I'll say so one thing that was done was to create the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, I should be cu- I should be clear. It's not that mortgage servicers were not regulated at all before the crisis. They were. They were by and large. So servicers could either belong to banks. So there are many banks, Chase Bank, Wells Fargo, et cetera, who have servicing lines of business, just like they have insurance companies and lending divisions and deposit account divisions. Um, and then there are other financial institutions that are not banks. We think of them as banks, as lay people, but, you know, sort of the rocket mortgages of the world. These are called non-banks or perhaps more pejoratively shadow banks, Uh, shadow banks, shadow bank servicers and regular old bank servicers were subject to federal regulations on servicing, mostly through the Truth in Lending Act and the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act. These regulations were not super strong. It will, the, they were not aggressively enforced, and they were not incredibly elaborated, mostly because you didn't really know what you needed to regulate uh, because we never really saw this incredible downturn. We never saw what servicers would have to do and what they were going to get wrong because servicing didn't exist in prior economic downturns. So it was sort of a new thing. There were rules, but they weren't robust. So the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was created, the CFPB, as part of the Dodd-Frank Act in 2010, and the authority over the Truth in Lending Act and the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act was transferred from the Federal Reserve and and the Housing and Urban Development Department to the CFPB, and the CFPB got to work uh, issuing new rules underneath those two uh, statutes to regulate and, and impose requirements on mortgage servicers, how you are supposed to deal with homeowners when they're in default. How do you deal with when they submit an application? How do you communicate with them? What's your obligations to accept complaints? How do you do the analysis to decide whether you foreclose or you give a workout? So lots of sort of consumer-facing requirements. That was one thing that happened, which has been good. But the thing that has happened that has not been good and that I argue in this book, the CFPB's consumer-facing rules really don't fix, is that banks, the places, you know, traditional banks, Chase, Wells Fargo, Regions, Capital One, et cetera, they are getting out of the mortgage servicing business in a huge way. They are just shedding their mortgage servicing uh, lines, closing up shop and selling their servicing rights to loans to shadow banks. They're doing that really for two reasons. One, um, after the financial crisis, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac created programs that incentivized servicers to sell their servicing rights in troubled loans to servicers that had more quote unquote expertise dealing with troubled loans. And that generally were servicers from the shadow banking sector. But the bigger thing that caused the shift is that it became really expensive for banks to have mortgage servicing arms. In other words, banks have to hold so much money in reserve. These are capital requirements. They're imposed by the Basel Committee, which is a big international committee that creates standards and countries sign on to them. After the financial crisis, The committee, when all of the member countries, of which the United States is a member, said, you know what, if you're a bank and you service mortgage loans, you have to hold more cash in reserve. So if you're a bank, you don't really want to hold a ton of cash in reserve. You'd rather deploy that to make loans or make investments or give it to your shareholders, et cetera. 
So to make that possible, if it became expensive to do mortgage servicing, banks were like, we'll just get out of the mortgage servicing business. And look, there's this new emerging area where shadow banks, non-banks, have gotten really aggressively involved um, in in servicing. So let's just sell it to them. So to give you like some numbers, in 2012, the percentage of mortgages that were serviced by shadow banks was only like 6.8%. In 2015, so this is a couple years later, it went up to almost 25%, with some estimates as high as 31%. I've not seen uh, new numbers, uh, at least, you know, there hasn't been any sort of new calculations done by the federal agencies since 2015, but I imagine the number is just much higher. Um, I do know in 2015, 35% of all Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and Ginny Mae loans, which basically accounts for a huge amount of the mortgage service of the, of the mortgage market in, in the United States were about 35% of them were, were serviced by the shadow banks. So that's a huge shift, but the significant, and that's not to say they don't have to follow all the CFPB's consumer facing rules. They do too. But the problem is that they don't have any capital requirements. They don't have to hold any money in reserve so that if there's a downturn, they've got some cash in their savings account to hire up, to have resources to deal with homeowners who are in distress. And these these entities are licensed at the state level. So you could be a mortgage servicer and get a license by the state banking department in Kentucky or the state banking department in Oklahoma. And of course, you know, if you could get it in New York or California, and those state banking departments tend to be very aggressive, very consumer oriented, very concerned with safety and soundness. But, you know, if you're in a very small state, your licensing requirements and your federal, your state banking regulator might not be that aggressive. Um, So unlike servicing that's done by banks, and banks are highly regulated, you know, despite their shortcomings, as we saw after 2008. They are highly regulated. They also have an obligation to the public, right? So um, Marissa Baradarian's book on how the other half banks really talks about the social contract between the federal government and banks in the way of, hey, we'll give you access to cheap money banks and we'll insure your deposits, but you have an obligation to serve your communities through the Community Reinvestment Act and other financial obligations and community obligations. So they're not purely profit-seeking businesses. But shadow banks are. They're not banks, and they don't have those same responsibilities. And by and large, at least we know today, they're owned by private equity, venture capital funds that are really looking to make a profit and cut costs. So all of that, this market shift towards shadow banks, really, in my mind, as I argue in the book, sets up this scenario where more and more of the loans in the United States are being serviced by firms that would not be ready in any meaningful way to deal with another economic downturn because you can have as many consumer facing consumer protection rules as you want, but if companies don't have the money to comply with them, they're rather useless. So in in the book, you, you argue both that the CFPB and the Dodd-Frank bill implemented some positive reforms in the area, but that they didn't go far enough. And in some way, it seems like some of the regulatory moves are getting rolled back. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of what you think the key improvements were and what you think we still need to do. 
Sure. So I definitely think what Dodd Frank did was separate and which had which had until that point been combined the regulatory concerns around financial institutions being healthy, financially healthy, being safe and sound, that they're not going to cause risk to the rest of the economy, and that they themselves can stay in business and be healthy and and sort of not cut corners with consumer protection. Now, the critique, and I think it was fair, is that between those two competing objectives, federal regulators, and I would say state regulators too, favored the former safety and soundness over the latter, consumer protection. So they were always concerned that banks and other financial institutions would be profitable and then be worried about whether or not they were fulfilling their obligations to consumers. The Dodd-Frank Act said, you know what, we're going to take consumer protection out of the mission of all of these various financial institution entities. So everything from the Federal Reserve um, to the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency to what was the Office of Supervision. And we're going to take that away from you as being part of your job. And we're going to consolidate that into one entity. And the only job of that entity will be consumer protection. And that's the CFPB. And in that way, the CFEB has been able to focus on how institutions, particularly mortgage servicers, deal with homeowners. But I think the, the downside of that is sort of the opposite of the critique, the initial critique, is that an institution can only follow consumer facing consumer protection rules if they have the money to do it. And as servicing has moved to a sector of the economy where there are companies, shadow bank servicers, that don't have mandatory capital sort of reserve requirements and are in fact incentivized because of their owners to increase profitability a great deal. Sort of think of the venture capital funds, the private equity funds that come in and buy a company and cut costs and try and improve um, its profitability, that they're not going to be ready for a crisis where we'll really put those consumer-facing rules to the test. So I think that is a problem. Um, I know I don't want to sort of reveal um, anything that was said, you know, in a meeting or at a conference, but I, I do know that there have been some hiccups between the CFPB and prudential regu- safety and soundness regulators of banks in trying to figure out how they're going to dance their dance together as they separately now supervise financial institutions. And, and I just kind of think that that tension will play out in a more meaningful way if when, when we have another crisis, because we know we will. Um, the other thing that I don't think Dodd-Frank did at all, and, and I sort of talk about in the book, and this is drawn on my prior work, and probably the thing that has gotten the most attention from lawyers and consumer groups, um, is the use of contractors by mortgage servicers in dealing with foreclosed properties. And there was not sufficient work done in Dodd-Frank, and there has not been sufficient work done at the state level to police the obligations that servicers have to police the contractors that they use in dealing with properties that are facing foreclosure. And so in the book, I talk a lot about uh, what's often called the mortgage field services industry. Um, The thrust of this is that when a homeowner defaults, the mortgage servicer sends a contractor that they have on retainer out to the property 
to check and see, uh, did a homeowner walk away? Is the property in good shape? Um, is it being damaged? Because of course it's going to get foreclosed upon potentially. And that's how the, uh, investors are going to be repaid. So there's an incentive to make sure everything is okay. Well, in 2012, we saw a flurry of articles cropping up in newspapers and media outlets all over the country telling these stories of homeowners who were coming back to their homes at the end of the day and discovering that their homes had been broken into. And after investigating, they would discover that it wasn't just some sort of criminal off the street. These were property management contractors or subcontractors or sub-subcontractors that were hired and were operating at the direction of the homeowner's mortgage servicer that had broken in. You know, typical... Uh, I mean, the, the, the problem was becoming so incredibly uh, uh, bad that homeowners were uh, being met with contract coming home and contractors had emptied out their homes, even when they were still being occupied. I share in the book stories of jewelry being thrown away, family photos, heirlooms, uh, a coin collection, an urn containing a man's ashes, uh, right. even disposing of a, man, of a family's pet cat. Um, all done by these contractors at the bottom of a very long chain that led up to the servicer. And I sort of talk in the book about how troubled this particular industry is, how really there's very little oversight either by the servicer or by the government in how these contractors, these downstream contractors deal with homeowners in terms of, you know, are there criminal background checks? Is there quality control? Is there training? How do we know there's not fraud? And a lot of this is driven by the margins are very low in terms of profitability for these contractors. They may only earn something like 4 to $10 per inspection in some places, which really incentivizes them to cut corners. And it can kind of draw uh, a certain type of person to this work. So, Chris, in in closing, I, I wonder if you could kind of uh, reflect on how vulnerable, both structurally and with respect to individual homeowner borrowers, the system remains even after reform, and to the extent there are changes that can be made, what do you think are the most kind of critical and um, pressing ones? Sure. So I, I think the the structure is still vulnerable to incredible weaknesses in, in the event of another financial downturn in the housing market. For the reasons that I mentioned, the servicing of mortgage loans in the United States is moving aggressively into a sector of the financial economy that is not well regulated. It's not even well understood. It's by and large left to state various state banking supervisors to primarily regulate. Um, again, I think the CFPB's activities in the mortgage servicing space in terms of looking at consumer facing issues has been important and good. But again, a firm can only follow the rules and sort of comply if it can handle the compliance costs. And when there's a downturn, these firms that are very thinly capitalized are going to have trouble. And in fact, Ginny May um, has been sort of waving its hands for quite a while now saying, hey, we're really concerned about this move to the shadow banking sector of basically all the mortgage loans that we guarantee. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any movement. And that's really... A failure of the Obama administration was to deal with the secondary mortgage market. What do we do with 
Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, loans being sold and securitized on the secondary market. And there really has been very little ability for Republicans or Democrats to come to any consensus because nobody really knows what to do. So that's sort of the structural weakness that I see. In terms of how to deal with it, I chapter seven and eight of the book um, sort of talk about this, the, the, that's the solutions chapter. Seven really focuses on this financial health of servicers. So I don't think shadow banking servicing is going anywhere. Um, it's just not going to return, I think, uh, in, in terms of banks doing this type of work. Uh, so there needs to be essentially some treatment of shadow bank servicers as we treat servicing that's done by banks. We have to make them hold a certain amount of capital in reserve for those rainy days, for when servicing becomes a more expensive proposition uh, and they need to staff up and have more resources to be able to help homeowners and deal with foreclosures and loan modifications when the volume gets really high. And so I talk about a regulatory structure that allows state banking supervisors, who admittedly are very territorial about their ability to license and keep control over non-bank servicers and the CFPB and other federal regulators who have an interest in this as well. Chapter eight is really advocating a change to state law and some federal law so that homeowners don't have to just rely on regulators to protect them, that where they can assert themselves in court. And the primary way is I advocate that this be done is to change some really key provisions in the standard mortgage contract to dial back the power of servicers to take such aggressive steps in managing the property after a default, but when the homeowner may very well still live there. And and as we saw, and I talk in the book, often did, uh, and to create an obligation on behalf of servicers to act in good faith in dealing with homeowners would probably surprise a lot of even lawyers is that when homeowners and their attorneys have brought servicers and their contractors to task, they very infrequently are successful because of really um, sort of particular nuances of state law. Most of the time, courts will say, well, you may think that this servicer or this servicer's contractor didn't fulfill their obligations by dealing with you and taking care of the home in the way that they should have, but they really don't owe an obligation to you. Their contract is with the servicer. The contractor's contract is with the servicer. And in fact, the servicer doesn't even have a contract with the homeowner. You remember the homeowner had a contract with the initial lender. That lender sold the loan to the trust and the trust is the one that has the contract with the servicer. So the homeowner is really at the mercy of a party that it has no privity with. And that many courts have said, that that servicer doesn't really owe good faith contracting obligations. Now, you might say, well, they owe an obligation to act reasonably under tort law, but interesting little nuances of state law have resulted in striking down those claims too under the so-called economic loss doctrine, the idea that if your claim is really related to a breach of contract, then you can't recover under tort. But in these cases, you can't recover under contract here because you don't have privity with the person you want to sue. So I advocate a change in state law for that as well. Great. Well, that sounds like they would both be – all of those reforms sound really sensible. And I hope that the book gets some traction in getting people thinking about how they can be accomplished. Thank you, Ryan. And I immensely enjoyed chatting with you today. And thank you for your really thoughtful questions.
Hello, this is Beverly Garland. The Federal Trade Commission asks you to look beyond the smiling faces and super promises because the FTC knows that some advertising can be misleading and deceptive. So don't believe everything you see or hear. Beware of extravagant promises and unsupported claims. Check it out before you buy. Shop wisely, you'll save money. This message is brought to you by the Federal Trade Commission, Washington, D.C.